HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, makers of specialty cheese from Switzerland, crafted with heart and passion. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. That's E-M-M-I-U-S-A.com. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Eat Your Heartland Out. I'm your host, Capri Cafaro. On today's show, we are on a mission to demonstrate that regional cuisine can tell hidden cultural stories anywhere in the world. And these stories can also reveal some surprising cross-cultural similarities. We have two guests who, like me, share a passion for telling a region's story through food. But unlike me, they're not from the Midwest. Joining us today is Emma Kay, a curator, food historian, author, and prolific contributor to print publications and TV shows, sharing her unparalleled knowledge of British food history. But first, let's welcome Samara Moyadine. Samara is a restaurateur, journalist, and host of the CBC radio show Unforked, which highlights the cultural stories behind Canada's food landscape. Samira, I cannot tell you how excited I am to have you on our program because when I was driving around in my car, as I do listening to CBC Radio 1 on Sirius XM, I came across your program Unforked and just thought to myself, my goodness, I want to know this woman and hear about how she decided to do this <laughs> show. Um, and, uh, you know, a show that, you know, I feel like we we kind of are coming at the same underlying theme from two different perspectives, two different countries, but the underlying theme is mm-hmm. is very much the same. Um, you mentioned Canadian food is food of the world in your show Unforked. So um, first and foremost, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your background and how you decided to create this show. Sure. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's been great um, just getting to know your show, actually, and your background. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, my name is Samira Moyadin. I'm the host of Unforked, which is um, a 10-part uh, summer series that we were doing on CBC Radio 1. And um, sort of the origin story of the show really goes back a, a long way, Um I I thought of Unforked while I was in journalism school and it first manifested as a magazine project for a magazine class um, in journalism school. And then I sort of just held on to the idea of it um, because uh, I went on to open a restaurant with my brother who's a chef. Uh, it's an Iranian restaurant. And, you know, there were always these sort of cast of characters that would come in and out of the restaurant. And if you're in the restaurant industry, uh, you know this very well, that people have their peculiarities on how they like to eat, you know, how they want things cooked. And then also you start learning more and more about them and sort of how they weave their politics into what they're eating and what they're not eating. And I just found it really fascinating because at the heart of all all of this, you know, the show, even Unforked, it are people and their stories. And so when I had the opportunity to pitch this uh, to CBC Radio, they loved the idea of a show that looks at food, but then also focuses on the culture and politics baked into it. And so that 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 basically became the tag for our show. 
Um, and it's been a really wild ride because I've been in Canada 42 years. I immigrated right. with my family from Iran in 1979. But I really learned a lot about this country just making this program, uh, even mm. though, you know, we took history in school and all that stuff. But looking at the food, I learned so much more about Canada. I, and and I can say the same for my experience hosting Eat Your Heartly Endowed. I mean, coming from, you know, again, kind of a similar situation, you know, from a government background, not a journalism background. But, you know, through that, you get exposed to so many different individuals and cultures and backgrounds and contexts. And, you know, really, you know, I really felt that food was a way to it was a gateway into telling these interesting stories about people. Mm. And, um, and and was immediately drawn to, you know, the stories that I heard, um, you know, when I was driving around. And then, of course, got on the, the uh, CBC Listen app and, and started to listen <laughs> that way. So you just mentioned that, you know, you, you came to um, Canada from Iran in 1979. And it made me think of um, one of the episodes that you did about agriculture and how you have this sort of romanticized view in some ways and this uh of of agriculture which <laughs> I do as well but then your you know your family members that actually lived and worked on the farm have a totally different view and i thought that was a very interesting kind of dynamic first off because you know you described this very um i think maybe stereotypical view of you know canada you know eating maple mm-hmm. off of snow and all of this sort of thing <laughs> tell me a little bit about your personal story Yeah, my cousins who worked on the farm wanted nothing to do with it after, you know, they got to a certain age and they didn't have to do it, right? Uh, One, as I said on the program, one is now a lawyer, the other one is is a dentist. Um, They got out as fast as they could. Uh, You know, I think the idea for this episode about farming, um, it, it really was born out of going to farmer's markets and this sort of pastoral, you know, idea, this idyllic view of working the land and feeding the people. But then, you know, we don't really know what's happening behind the scenes. We just see these people show up with their at these stalls and they're, you know, doughy eyed and smiling at us. And we pester them with our questions like, what kind of soil do you use? Or, you know, what what's the <laughs> name of your chicken and blah, blah, blah. Um, but we don't know the hard work that goes into it. And then, you know, there's also all of this stuff. Unfortunately, you know, um, we're only a half an hour show. So we couldn't explore like government subsidies, you know, um, the amount of farmers, the decline of farming, um, who's actually working on those farms, right? Foreign temporary workers and what their lives are like. And so there were all these other things that I wish we had the time to touch on, um, and hopefully maybe in the future, uh, if CBC execs are listening. Uh, But uh, you know, I, I wanted to sort of pull back the curtain on this idyllic view that we have and how we look at farmers markets with these rose colored glasses, when really, there is a serious decline in the amount of, of farm and, and family and family run farms mm-hmm. in this country. And they're not getting the help that they used to from the government. And then at the same time, it's so important to know where your food is actually coming from. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not poo-pooing the farmer's market, but I did want to sort of lift, you know, lift the sort of rose-colored glasses and take a real good hard look at it. But, you know, as you said, mm-hmm. the reality behind it, and I learned this representing dairy, small dairy farmers in southern Ashtabula County, the far northeast corner of Ohio, closer to Canada than mm. it is to our state capital. And, you know, hearing about how hard it was for these individuals to, you know, get their milk to market and how the, you know, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and all the big companies were price fixing and, you know, they would have to take their milk to these larger processors and and they got no money out of it. And so for every, you Mm -hmm. know, gallon of milk, they got five cents back and those sort of things. But as consumers, and particularly consumers maybe of privilege, um, you know, we've seen this trend yes. in the United this trend in the United States of, um, you know, uh, glamorizing wanting to go and and you know buy a farm in upstate New York 
and this sort of thing and, and making a hobby farm and, a, and, a, and a, you know, and a bed of breakfast, yeah. you know, you know what I'm getting at, right? Yes, and, exactly. Yeah. Hudson Valley and all those places. <laughs> uh, yeah. We have that exact same thing happening here and they don't know what they're getting themselves into. I've spoken to people in those areas and they, you know, they say life is hard. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. And a lot of them abandoned the idea and went back to the city. Well, I mean, it takes a lot of intestinal fortitude, as they say, um, you know, to to get to, you know, really be committed to those sort of things, because it isn't just, you know, uh, sharing your bounty at the farmer's market and, and, you know, sharing those values. And all of those things are very important, as you said. But I think that's why shows like this and shows shows like yours are so important, because pulling that curtain back uh, is, is an important process for people to see the bigger picture and understand the people behind what we consume on, on a daily basis, which, which brings me to another thing that I heard on, on what I think the first show I heard, um, which is what made me reach out to you. And it was about hummus and I believe Lebanese uh, immigrants and immigrant families in Newfoundland. And it really, it, I, I hope it was Newfoundland. I think it was, right. uh, it was actually Prince Edward Island. Oh, PEI. Okay, I'm sorry. Prince Edward Island. And so it just made me made me think about a lot of the immigrant stories that I tell in the Midwest, where I, I often liken the Maritimes to parts of the Midwest because, you know, they are smaller, they're older, maybe, the, you know, they're older population, you know, they have a, more economic challenges and that sort of thing. And, and I think on their face, they're not seen particularly as maybe ethnically di- as diverse as, diverse, yes. you know, um, some of the, the bigger cities, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. whether it is, you know, here in the United States, the New Yorks of the world, or they are, you know, Toronto and whatnot. And so when I heard this episode, I'm like, well, this is exactly the kind of story that we like to tell. And I think our audience would be really interested in. Um, so walk us through those discussions you had with the uh, Lebanese community and the individuals there about um, preserving their, the, hummus recipes and how they adapted to what was available to them and and all of that. Yeah, this this was another sort of big aha moment for me when we did this program. Um, it, it was actually our second episode um, that we we focused on gastro-nationalism, but then we decided to sort of touch down in, in Prince Edward Island, uh, which has a very old um, Lebanese community. I didn't know that, you know. Um, but at the time, the country was called Syria. So Greater Syria, Lebanon um, came about in the uh, 1920s. And so there's the Michael family, eight brothers and sisters. Uh, and Michael uh, uh, Adado uh, had come over to Prince Edward Island. And the story was that, you know, when he arrived, the immigration officers didn't really get his last name, Adado. So they just called him Michael. Hmm. Um, so um, he was a peddler on the island and he was selling things like soap and other stuff and throughout the years the family lost their language so they they no longer speak Arabic they lost their religion and the only thing that they've really held on to is their food culture and they still have these big Sunday family dinners and when we were talking to Tracy Michael, um, who is the uh, granddaughter of um, Michael Adotto, um, she was telling us that, you know, when she was going to school in, in the 70s and 80s as a, as a young girl, um, hummus was something she would take for lunch to school. And everyone would make fun of her because it was stinky and all this stuff. And when she was getting to university, all of a sudden, everyone was saying to her, hey, have you ever tried hummus? Have you tried this? And she was thinking to herself, my God, all <laughs> of you used to make fun of me for eating this. And now you're trying to explain to me what it is. And I found that so interesting, that reversal of how this food item that she was sort of chastised mm. for as a kid is has now taken over. I mean, grocery stores all over the world, right? Uh, it's become this dip that everybody loves. But at the time when the Adotto family had just arrived, it was something that they were being ridiculed for. And it's fascinating, you know, mm-hmm. how these sort of food items, something as simple as tahini, chickpea, lemon, olive oil, changes over time depending on who's consuming it 
you know, and, and how we're sort of um, how we're looking at the people who are making it. So again, here's another food item that we're learning about the people who have sort of brought it over into Canada, right? Not to say that, you know, for us, we don't know. Maybe somebody uh, older than the Michaels had was having hummus here, but this is a this is a hummus recipe for 120 years that's still thriving in this little corner of Prince Edward Island. And we just found that fascinating, you know, and to hear someone with that PEI accent say hummus, it just, mm-hmm. it just warmed my heart. Yet another uh, episode that stuck out was, was one about decolonizing food and a discussion that, I, you know, originated um, kind of contextually with a conversation that happened in your restaurant mm-hmm. with someone from the Ontario Board of Health and a, and a unique um, dish that you offer in your restaurant. Yes. Um, and La- I don't testicles. think I can tell the story as well as you. So I, I want you to, yes, can, can please, please share and, and <laughs> let, let us know about what happened. Yeah. So we went, uh, we opened in um, 2005 and about a month and a half after we first opened, we had a, um, a person from Toronto Public Health come in and uh, say that they got a phone call about a food item on our menu and that they have to inspect it and make sure that it's okay. And it was lamb testicles. So we serve lamb testicles along with heart and tongue and other sort of offcuts that um, normally people toss aside. Uh, but I think that that's changed uh, in the last uh, years. But, uh, you know, she came in in this white lab coat, very official. And, of course, the restaurant is packed and everybody's sort of looking, you know, what's going on here. And uh, it's the last thing you want to see, you know, as a diner in a restaurant is someone from Toronto Public Health coming in. We went around and sort of explained to everybody what was happening. But people had ordered the dish that night and we were told by Toronto Public Health that you can no longer serve this until we inspect the item, and then also the farm that you got it from. And it was just really demoralizing, you know, um, because it's just, I understand sort of from the outside looking in that, you know, you don't, maybe you've never eaten lamb testicles, uh, but, you know, like snails are sort of weird to eat too, right? I mean, uh, let's let's be real. There's a lot of things that are consumed that in other parts of the world, they might think like, oh my God, you're eating that? But anyway, so they came back, you know, uh, after inspecting and said, you know, uh, you can, you can, you know, serve it to your customers. And the person finished with saying, you know, you have to understand, we just don't eat that kind of food around here. And I thought, you know, we and here, it sort of put us, um, who we think were Canadians, sort of outside that picture of we and here. And right. that's what really stayed with me, right, was that feeling of being outside um, of that sort of Canada's mosaic, uh, culinary sort of mosaic. And, you know, what, what was really disheartening also is I found out that in Alberta, they eat um, uh, bull testicles, right? They just call it prairie oysters. It's not lamb. Oh, my. It's bull. Uh, so I was like, hey, you do eat this stuff. You know, maybe not in Toronto, but other parts of Canada. Yeah, I can tell you when I was when I was in Ukraine, and I'm part Ukrainian, like 10, 12 years ago, mm-hmm. and that's a delicacy in Ukraine as well, testicles. And I was like, uh, I don't think I'm adventurous enough. I'm not Anthony <laughs> Bourdain. Uh, yeah. I'm, I, but but you know what though, it, it is incredibly. I I interviewed um, a gentleman from Columbus, Ohio. We have a big Somali population in Columbus mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. that, you know, came over as refugees in the 1990s, you know, during, you know, the, you know, uh, co- post-conflict Mogadishu, et cetera. And yes. uh, this guy started a, a restaurant with uh, a Somali guy, started a restaurant with a Peruvian guy, and it was called The Mix. And they they sold the very well-known sort of the Peruvian roasted chicken and then camel. Oh, Wow. And people in Ohio were like, camel? Like, and so I said, where do you get camel? Like, how and where do you get camel? So they, I was surprised they actually did not. Yeah, where did he get it? It's imported. They imported. And and I was surprised that they didn't have a story similar to yours. um, Because I, I, you know, can imagine that, you know, while Columbus is a much more metropolitan area for, you know, my state of Ohio, and still, that's a pretty exotic dish, but 
it does tell that story. It tells the story of the fact that now we have a huge Somali population in Ohio that are now Americans. And, and it, it stuck with me when you, when I listened to the, that specific episode and you talked about how that health department individual came in and said, we don't eat this here and the whole we in here and somehow, you know, you're not part of we in here. Um, mm-hmm. it, it just, it, that really stuck with me. And, and that is, you know, again, why I wanted to have this conversation with you on, on our show, because we try to break down those barriers too. And, and, uh, you know, I, I want to dive just a little bit deeper into the, you know, the lessons you've learned about Canada in this process. Um, and, um, you know, maybe any observations you think that maybe the United States could take away from at least your experience in Canada about, you know, uh, Canadian food being the food of the world and being this diverse, mm-hmm. you know, uh, community of nations under one you know, one umbrella, one, one nation, one flag, mm-hmm. even with your background, uh, as a journalist and, and as someone who, you know, runs a restaurant, it does sound, and to, to your acknowledgement that you in this process, uh, hosting Unforked have learned a lot. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, food for, uh, uh, for us at Unforked was sort of this Trojan horse, you know, um, we used it to sort of learn about, uh, Canada and different cultures that make up this country. I mean, uh, and different cultures in time. So, for instance, when we came to Canada from Iran in 79, there were so many things we couldn't find here um, in, in terms of ingredients. So I remember, for instance, in those first couple of years when my grandmother kept going back and forth and bringing stuff with her, one suitcase was always just full of spices. And... And even some pots and pans. Like, I remember thinking to myself, are you serious? Like, they have pots and pans here, but they weren't the right pots and pans, you know? And so people really Mm. do carry, they carry those food traditions with them on their back, sort of like snails, you know? And they carry it Mm. with them wherever they go. And the meaning of those things change. I mean, I remember when we first came here, uh, you couldn't find plain yogurt, there was no plain yogurt mm-hmm. in the grocery stores. They had strawberry, they had blueberry, they had all these stuff. So we we used to make our own yogurt and we'd buy these. I don't know if you have bags of milk um, where you're from, but we don't Canada. do bags of milk. Um, it, it parmalat and all that like freaks people out in the United yeah. States, <laughs> much like shelf stable eggs. But yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we used to buy these massive bags of milk, like 10, 20 at a time. And I remember being a little kid and the girl at the grocery store being like thinking to herself, what are you going to do with all this milk, right? It was enough to like fill two tubs. Um, and so these things change, right? Today, you there are dozens of Iranian grocery stores in Toronto. Um, and mm-hmm. you don't even need to know how to speak English if you go to certain parts of Toronto, you can speak Persian and get along right. just fine, right? The teller at the bank is Persian. So-and-so is Persian. So it really is, as you said earlier, as people move and change locations, so does food, right? We take those things with us. And we're very spoiled in Toronto. I mean, it is a major city. It's a huge city. But there's 160 languages spoken in this city. And... We get every type of cuisine from Eritrean to Ethiopian to, I mean, you know, it gets that sort of meta uh, and uh, we're spoiled in a lot of ways. And it's interesting to me to go to these communities and see how everyone has not only adapted their cuisine to sort of um, sometimes fit other palates and make it more uh for lack of a better word, palatable to other people, but at the same time, how they're sort <laughs> of exerting their own identity, right? And and and, and right. putting a sort of place for themselves within Canada's um, culinary mosaic. And one of the things I learned is, you know, Canada or trying to define Canadian cuisine and what it is, is very difficult, right? Because the stereotypes are, you know, in the Maritimes, it's lobster, or it's potato, or whatever, or you go out west, and it's, you know, steak, like in Alberta and stuff, or in, you know, Quebec, it's poutine. And, you know, but if you take a place like Ontario, I don't know what to tell you, like, what is Ontario food? I have no idea. But our first episode, which 
focused on sort of indigenous cuisine. Oh, I'm so glad you brought this up because if you didn't, I was going to bring it up. (laughs) (laughs) Indigenous chefs and activists are sort of redefining what Canadian cuisine is and really what the origins of that cuisine is because, uh, you know, it was talking to an indigenous chef. He was calling his cuisine resistance cuisine. Yes. You know, and, and sort of decolonizing his diet. So getting rid of white flour and sugar and all of the things that were given to them in place of their own food that they were eating. And that's what really spurred that whole episode was I had gone to this um, indigenous chef's restaurant and had eaten seal uh, tartare for the first time. Mm -hmm. And I had never eaten seal cooked anyways, never mind tartare. But his restaurant was being um, boycotted and had this petition against it saying, you know, you shouldn't be serving seal tartare. It's cruel. It's this, it's that. Um, and I just was so fascinated by the fact that like, here was this indigenous chef who again was having his cuisine policed, maybe not by the state this time, but by the general public. And I found that fascinating. I mean, Mm. and I really felt for him, you know? Uh, and so, Mm -hmm. It, it, it's just fascinating to me the sort of the politics blended into all of this stuff that I think we take for granted, right? We never all sit down and look at a plate of food that's given to us and think about all these things. I mean, I don't expect people to do that, but we really hope that people, when they listen to the show, will sort of think more about what's on their plate and go beyond that. Well, that's, I think, a wonderful place for us to end this conversation because that's exactly what we hope. Um, here on Eat Your Heartland Out. And uh, I encourage everyone to listen to Unforked because, you know, we are connected in North America. Uh, we, sh- we share, you know, a lot of, um, you know, unique experiences. Um, they may not be exactly the same, but thematically, I think that we, we share a lot of the same, you know, ideals and challenges. Absolutely. And what you're trying to do um, to to pull that curtain back, as we discussed at the beginning of our conversation on, um, you know, what's on our plate and who's behind it, I I think is an important conversation to have. Uh, And I'm glad you're having it in Canada as we strive to do here, uh, at least in uh, in a region um, of the United States that is often overlooked mm-hmm. and stereotyped. And, and as you said, as you, as you said, it's all about the people behind that food, right? And uh, you're bringing those stories out too, which is really lovely. Well, that's, that's our goal. And, and uh, you know, as every time I feel like we, we do a little bit better and we go a little bit deeper and, um, you know, I, I'm learning from people like you as well. So thank you for taking your time to share your Canadian journey uh, and your show Unforked uh, on CBC uh, Radio 1, as well as available on the CBC uh, Listen app. Thanks so much, Samira, and hoped that we have a chance to uh, speak uh, again and maybe collaborate in the future. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese. Makers of specialty cheese from Switzerland, crafted with heart and passion. Since the early 1900s, Emmy has been a passionate supporter of farmers, cheesemakers, and family tradition. They believe in sustainable agriculture and respect for the people, land, and animals that make their business possible. Remaining dedicated to tradition, they strive to lead the industry in innovation ensuring they bring you only the highest quality, best-tasting cheese from Switzerland. Emmy is best known for importing more than 80% of Swiss Gruyere in the United States. But that's not to overshadow their other specialty cheeses, including Kaltbach cave-age cheeses, Appenzeller, Tete de Moine, and traditional Emmentaler. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. That's E-M-M-I-U-S-A.com. You're listening to Eat Your Heartland Out. Our final guest this hour is Emma Kay. Emma is a British food historian, museum curator, and author who contributes her culinary knowledge to a variety of media outlets, including ours. You're quite an expert in food history. You're coming to us from uh, across the Atlantic in the United Kingdom. Um, And I think you bring a really interesting perspective because 
From our initial conversation, one thing that I learned from you uh, that I'd love to have you share with our listeners is the fact that, you know, Britain, the UK, you know, England, Ireland, Northern Ireland, Scotland, and Wales, um, they actually have been occupied by a number of different peoples and cultures, and that's impacted their foodways very similarly to the United States, something that really surprised me. Yeah, hugely. I mean, we have, you know, we had the Romans, then we had the Anglo-Saxons, then we had the Vikings, and then we had the French, you know, and each was here for, you know, like a couple of hundred years. So it is a big old melting pot of, um, you know, diversity, really. For us, you know, in the United States, we often look at, well, you know, of course, you know, there's the indigenous communities in North America, but, um, you know, it's it's really the immigrants that came here that, uh, you know, built upon that indigenous, those those indigenous traditions and resources and everything else. They brought their own, uh, you know, culture and food ways with them. Obviously, we are sort of the kid of, of the United Kingdom here in the United States of America, Canada, yeah. similarly. So we just assume, well, of course, like, you know, Britain has, you know, they, you're more of an origin story. And we, for, we don't realize that you have a very similar food path to the United States. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, I guess we do, and I guess lot, lots, you know, it, it, I mean, we're not unique. I, I should think every single nation in the world has been influenced in some way by migration, by immigration. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's you know, it's, it, it, I think it's a worldwide thing, really. Um, Emma, you've mentioned a number of these these different, uh, you know, groups uh, that have migrated uh, into, you know, what's current day the United Kingdom. You mentioned the, the Romans and the French and, and, you know, the Vikings. Give us some examples of uh, some of the food, um, maybe produce, livestock that they brought with them that is still integrated into sort of the, the, the British food landscape of the 21st century. Yeah, well, it was very basic um, before the Romans came along. So uh, we were Celts. We were a very basic, simple um, nation. We uh, grew very little. We just relied on um, barley and wheat and peas and beans and cattle, and that's about it. And when the Romans came along, they introduced us to all manner of different uh, vegetables and fruits and um, herbs. So they bought, you know, pears and celery and leeks and plums and chestnuts and and all kinds of things. And and they also um, bought with them uh, sheep. So they bought a special kind of uh, white face sheep. Um, which uh, they then integrated into Wales, and of course Wales is very famous now for its for its mm-hmm. lamb and and for its wool, and <clears throat> um, and the Romans they gave us sausages, you know, and <laughs> we are now kind of a, a nation uh, of sausage eaters. They are also probably <clears throat> the uh, people that introduced us to fried fish. Um, so, uh, you know, you, I mean, the com is a very complex story about fried fish, but yeah, they, uh, the, the Celts had very little fish in their diet. It was mostly cattle. So, um, and then the Romans also bought with them when we're talking about fish, they bought with them, um, you know, oyster beds. So they were cultivating yeah. oysters here, um, especially along the Kent coast, which is really famous for oysters still today. So you've got Whitstable and, um, uh, and then you have uh, the Vikings that came along and the, well, the Anglo-Saxons and the Vikings. And they taught us, we're still on the theme of fish, to how to dry and to smoke fish. So I don't know if you've ever heard of the Arbroath Smoky. It's a very famous mm-hmm. um, uh, fish in, uh, in the Highlands. And then, of course, you get the French and the French, uh, they, well, even though the Romans bought grapes with them, uh, the French then kind of took it to the next level. And uh, we, we were a really big wine growing region when the French were here. If you look at the Doomsday Book, which is um, a, fam- a very sort of famous uh, record of <clears throat> what sort of happened in communities then in, in British communities. You look at it, it's 1086, it goes back to 1086. And there were, uh, you can find about over 40 vineyards all sort of um, started up sort of west of London. And then, so you're looking now, when you look at that area, again, you're looking at, at Kent 
and it's now become a real thriving um, kind of centre of wine production there in that area today. So, I mean, it's incredible, really. <laughs> it really is. And, and as I'm listening to you tell these stories about the Vikings and the French, and uh, for example, it makes me think of some of the stories that I've heard about uh, the migration patterns and the, and the immigrant uh, settlers in parts of the, the American Midwest, which is why I think this conversation is, is so fascinating to tie all of this together, because as I talk to folks in, in the upper Midwest and states like Minnesota that had a significant uh, Scandinavian immigrant population that came. You're talking about, you know, 10th century, uh, or excuse me, the, the, uh, you know, the 11th century. I'm talking about the 19th century, but we're, we have some of the same kind of things, you know, d- you know, centuries later are happening here uh, in the United States and, and not in North America where, um, you know, the, uh, the Nordic communities are bringing these kind of traditional smoked fish uh, to uh, the upper Midwest, and, and for example. And then we have, you wouldn't expect, like you maybe people don't expect that there's wine country in England. There is wine country all across the uh, the Midwest, around the Great Lakes. And these, these you know, grapes were brought over by European immigrants. They were later on um, you know, grafted and, and made hybrids to, to meet the climate. And so it's just so interesting that you know, the United Kingdom has a similar kind of, of story because, you know, we, we often think, you know, maybe rightfully or wrongfully that, you know, British food is bland, that it's, you know, meat and potatoes, that it's fish and chips, which we will revisit in a minute. Um, but the same sort of stereotypes apply to the American Midwest. It's meatloaf, it's hamburgers, it's this sort of bland, industrial food, kind of like the equivalent of beans on toast, you know, in Britain. But there's so there's so much more there than than those um, those stereotypes of, of bland food. Um, I, since we I mentioned the 10th century a minute ago, even though I was meeting the 11th century, um, people didn't just, um, you know, migrate in, and settle into what's currently the UK, but, uh, you know, English and British um, explorers went and brought things back as well, right? But all the way back to the 10th century and the Crusades. Yeah, if you look at the Crusaders, I mean, they brought back many influences um, from the Middle East. I mean, not not just food. I mean, things, you know, they taught us so much about architecture, about medicine, mm. about, I mean, you know, even paper making. But they yeah. brought luxury items back with them. I mean, things like, if you look at our you know a, a, a sort of a typical british christmas dinner and you think about mince pies or christmas pudding you know the heart of those are totally based on um products that were bought back from the middle east so you've got your your citrus and your spices and your nuts you know your your almonds and and the whole premise of the mince pie was based on you know the kind of the religious thir- the thirteen disciples, so you had sort of thirteen items that you would add to your pie, um, and uh, that was that was you know it was a very symbolic religious item, and it actually come it was in, the the name Minson is actually a Middle Eastern word, you know. So oh, interesting. You know, so uh, at that time we were and sugar, of course. You know, we had very early sugar come into the the country from the Middle East and rice just we just didn't stop using it. And if you look back to early medieval dishes, rice is the basis of so much, you know, and it all came from the Middle East. Um, uh, So, I mean, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And of course, you know, just thinking about the Americas. You know, I mean, we wouldn't again. Sorry, I'm kind of thinking about Christmas dinner. But yeah, please uh, think about the uh, you know, we have like the Norfolk turkey, which is the the, yeah, which is the black Norfolk turkey, which we 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 um, we crave here. It's like the thing that you want for your Christmas dinner. And of course, that came um, from the Americas via Spain. You know, our potatoes came from the Americas via Spain, you know. Um, so <laughs> so really, our Christmas meal is looking like it's, you know, there's not an awful lot there that hasn't come from somewhere else. Um, you know, I, I often look at the correlations between, you know, America and Britain. And, you know, obviously, America was... <laughs> 
you know, large parts of America were built on, you know, uh, early British settlers. And those right. early British settlers brought recipes with them, you know, and, right. and, and they adapted them to suit whatever was there and what was available. Um, and, you know, so there are huge influences from uh, from both sides of the Atlantic, aren't there? From, Absolutely. Uh, you know, with us and with you. And, and, and it really is fascinating. The more and more you read it, the more you know, read about it, the more you realise what actually exists there. I mean, it, it is fascinating. It really is. Um, you know, maybe not as, you know, a food historian, but more along the lines of just as a, you know, person yeah. um that's that's not american how would you define american food there's no right or wrong answer like just <laughs> gut reaction how would you define american food and have you ever even thought about the midwest because it is as as we talk as as unfortunately it's called here they call it flyover country yeah well i mean the the sad that i mean when you told me about the scandinavian influences i didn't know that i mean i i did know about the grapes but um, I do actually have always thought of America as a place that is, because it is so multicultural, you do have a, a vast array of different foods. Um, and, uh, and, and that's like North America and South America. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and I, and I have always thought that. But for some reason, just like you were saying earlier about how, you know, people think British food is bland. I, I do think there is always this emphasis with America on burgers and fries and hot dogs. McDonald's. And meatloaf and, you know, and I think it's it's really quite strange in a way that that these sort of kind of odd legacies exist across uh, across both our nations because... I mean, that's just not true, is it, really? I mean, in some parts it is, in some areas, in some districts and regions it is. But but we are both, you know, a, a big old melting pot. But for some reason, it's not, you know, people like to just have an idea, don't they? People like to just sort of think, well, no, they're known for that and they're known for this. And that's, you know, and that's the way it is. They don't think about what's underneath all that and I just think it's quite odd really in this day and age really you know to think that that's kind of still the perception of American food and the perception of British food it's 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 odd <laughs> it's it's very well I I have to say that you know when when I am over in the UK the things that I look forward to most are a very good curry and yeah. good Thai f- and and good and good Thai food and both of those yeah. things you know are, are obviously not uh, you know indigenous to uh, the British Isles. Can you can you give us a little bit of insight on on how you know uh, those kind of yeah. foods that I think you know are very much part of you know the uh, uh, yeah. the food culture and the landscape right now? Yeah, well, I mean it, it's it's empire, isn't it? It's old empire, and it's still here. You know, I mean, the the reason why we all love curry in this country is because, you know, when the when we were when we ruled India, you know, we wanted to bring we enjoyed the food and wanted to bring it back. You know, so people brought their servants back with them um, and, you know, they had their their food cooked here for them. And then suddenly someone had the bright idea who came across from India you know, let's set up a little kind of, I think it was like an Indian cafe is what it actually was. It was called the Hindustan. And that was in the 1700s. It was kind of quite early, actually. Um, And then from then on, you know, people enjoyed the cafe food so much in London that it just started to take off and more and more Indian food came into the country as a result of empire. Um, And then you have a second wave in the 20th century, you know, where you have, um, uh, where you've got empire, which is, you know, crumbled. And then uh, you have Indian communities coming over here, wanting to make a new life and new opportunities. Mm -hmm. And so then you have another wave of that. And then you have this huge, you know, uh, especially in sort of areas like Birmingham and Yorkshire, Mm -hmm. Uh, where big sort of Indian families settled. And then you get, you know, you get all the curry houses up up there, which are really famous and renowned. Um, And, you know, the same with the Chinese, when we took over Hong Kong in the 1840s, 
lots of Chinese people came here and set up, um, you know, set up restaurants. And, and so you've got this big culture of Chinese food and Indian food. Um, and none, I don't think any of it is particularly, sometimes it's very authentic, but it's more to the taste of British people, sadly. Um, there are some incredible, don't get me wrong, I mean, there are some incredible Indian restaurants and Chinese restaurants in this country, but the majority that you find on the high street are probably nothing like the sort of food that you would eat in India or China. Well, that's another similarity we have in the in the United States. I mean, fantastic food, but definitely tailored to the palates that, may, yeah. um, you know, of, of Americans that may not necessarily have, you know, as much experience with spice or or certain ingredients like goat, you know, that, that you know, may be more prevalent in, in a more authentic diet. Um, but again, it's that process of um, evolution, adaptation, um, you know, and, and how uh, communities end up becoming this melting pot of, of food ways and, and food culture where, you know, um, to me, uh, you know, a, a curry is exa- exactly what I want when I'm, you know, in in the UK, and I'm not even thinking about fish and fish and chips. Which brings me to my final <laughs> question that that I had to ask you, and that is, you know, fish and chips is probably the most emblematic British thing outside of, I guess, bangers and mash, right? So, fish and chips, uh, you kind of referenced this before, but not really a native dish of the British Isles, right? Wow. Well, you know what? It's Fish and chips is something I've come back to again and again and again, because there is no kind of definitive answer to it. It is, I have realized that it's actually a combination of many different cultures. Um, And I mean, it all started with the Romans. You know, I already mentioned that they introduced us really to fried fish. And there are recipes in a Roman book called Apicius, which is the first century AD that they, we know that they were cooking here. And it was it was kind of coated in rice flour and then fried. Um, and, and then you get so that sort of stays in the British culture right through medieval times. You, you go through old medieval recipe books and there's always recipes for fried fish because it was also a, um, used during um, fasting days when you couldn't eat meat. So the, we, once upon a time, we had many, many religious fasting days. So fish with fried fish was great mm. on those sort of days. And then you get this kind of surge in the 1600s when there were a lot of uh, um, Jewish migrants that came from Portugal and Spain, sort of escaping um, persecution, but also merchants that were settling here. And and they kind of commercialised the fried fish. So they started selling it out on the street. Um, and, uh, so, you know, rather than just cooking it at home, it was, it was available out on the street to buy as cheap food. Right. And, and we've always had the kind of fried potato as well. That's always been in the background. Um, and what we used to do with it in, in sort of medieval times is, I mean, I've seen this a few times now is it used to be sort of fried potato served with sort of butter and then wine on top of it, which must sounds absolutely hmm. disgusting. Uh, but, but then this kind of changes. You get to around 17, 1700s and then it's 1747. I don't know if you've heard of Hannah Glass. You probably have. She's a very famous um, recipe writer uh, who sort of changed uh, the, the kind of course of recipe writing um, in this country. And she actually writes... And this is really interesting. She actually um, says something on the long the lines because she includes a recipe for fried fish and fried potatoes and she hmm. includes um something like uh, a note to say some people prefer it this way and then she goes on to talk about the batter for fish so she talks about a batter with flour and egg and milk which is the first time you get that kind of reference of that batter um and then you've got to remember this is the time the 1700s when all the big country houses if you were anyone you would have a french chef in your kitchen sure some had, some had italian chefs but mostly they were french french or italian italians tended to concentrate on the confection or the sugar work or things like that but so of course you've got the french and the french 
um, had uh, fried potatoes, but they did it in a slightly different way. So they would kind of like shave the potatoes, almost like a potato chip. In fact, there are many references to potato chip around that time and around the early 1800s, where you get sort of shaved potatoes that were deep, Hmm. quick fried. Um, And then this kind of, then you start reading things about the French um, eating fried fish and fried potatoes for breakfast. So it's become kind of fashionable, yeah. And then I've read things in the French press about them starting to sell fried potatoes and fried fish on the streets of Paris from little holes in the wall and, you know, little stalls and things. And then lo and behold, about sort of 10, 20 years later, you see the same thing starting to happen in the UK, in Britain. So they start selling, you can see things like fried fish and fried potatoes being sold in the streets around the sort of 1850s, 1860s. Um, But you still haven't got the word chip that comes in kind of later. Well, it comes in about the 1850s. But the interesting thing is that chipped potatoes were actually first eaten with steak here, not with fish. So you have the steak and chips. And then after the steak and chips, gradually, as you go into the 1870s, 1880s, you then you get your fish and chips, which you begin to see being sold on the streets. So really, we didn't get the, if you think about the, the actual phrase fish and chips, that really didn't come into being until about 1888, something like that. Um, but so, <laughs> so we've gone from from Romans to uh, to Jewish from Portugal and Spain, um, and then we've gone to the French, and then we adapted it um, into our own kind of thing. So it's a real, it's a right old kind of strange way of picking it apart. But there you have it. That that is how it happened. Well, and now, and now we know, and now we see things totally differently when we think about fish and chips. Emma, thank you so very much for connecting all of these dots for us uh, and traveling through history and traveling across the Atlantic uh, to um, share some of your knowledge with, with our listening audience. So thanks again. Hope to have you back. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Capri. Eat Your Heartland Out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.